Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy, part of the New Books Network. I am Rob Wolf. Today I'm speaking with Andy Weir, author of The Martian. It's his first novel, and it's about an astronaut stranded on Mars. Andy Weir has been a computer programmer since he was a teenager, until just a few months ago when he went full-time with his writing. He's written many short stories and created a few comic strips like Casey and Andy and Cheshire Crossing. And I want to thank you for joining me on New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. Thanks for having me. Well, so The Martian was a big hit. Congratulations. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's been been quite a ride. Well, it's topped Amazon Science Fiction bestseller list, but it debuted on the New York Times hardcover bestseller list at number 12. And I understand Ridley Scott is going to make it into a movie with a little-known guy named Matt Damon. Uh, that's the direction it's going. You never really know uh, with Hollywood until they actually start shooting. But at the moment, it, it's looking it's looking very good. Well, I think it's really exciting for everyone, the reader, the writer, obviously the publisher, when a debut author's book becomes a bestseller. And I just wonder what you've been feeling going through all this. You know, has The Martian success surprised you? Yes, very much so. I It's all been like, it, all, it, it almost seems like fake, almost like a, you know, a TV show kind of level you know what i mean it's like it things don't usually happen this way <laughs> so i don't i i don't know what to say and i and i don't know what i did right i'm just um i'm just really happy with how things are going well i wonder if you actually had any reflections on what are the elements that have come together to make the book so successful i mean obviously besides the fact that you tell a very good story are there other things like timing the time is just right for a story like this or any other elements that you maybe can pinpoint i don't know i think part of it was just that i had a i i had accumulated a few thousand readers to start with before i had written the martian and so that that gives you like a, a kind of a, I don't know what you call it, a critical mass for word of mouth. So I think that probably helped a lot. And I, I like to think it's a it's a good story. So that probably helps. And um, I don't know. I, 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 I wish I knew. Actually, it makes me insecure. I'm like, well, I'm working on my next book. I hope I do whatever it was that people liked again. <laughs> How did you acquire that particular fan base? Was that just through your own website or were there other avenues? Uh, the website, uh, well, just various creative efforts. So I, I started that comic strip, Casey and Andy, I think in the year 2000 or so. And then that built up a lot of readers. I moved on to Cheshire Crossing. That built up more readers. Then I moved on to just doing straight-up narrative fiction and posting my website. And by then, I'd already accumulated, I don't know, like somewhere between one and 2,000 readers. And then over time, that went up. And then in 2009, I wrote a short story called The Egg that got really popular all over the internet. That was like millions of page views and people posted it around. And and so that, I think, got me a little bit of uh, kind of name recognition and people would, you know, it got people to sign up on my mailing list to see what else I was writing. And Yeah, and I read somewhere that it took you only 40 minutes to write The Egg. Yeah. And, <laughs> and yet it's had this incredible, I mean, it, and it is a great story. Oh, thanks. 
and you know, and it makes it sort of makes your mind pop with a very cool high concept. That made me wonder: Does writing always come that easy for you? Oh well, I've also written a lot of stuff that people have n- never heard of, you know. So <laughs> I guess uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of chaff to go along with the wheat, just like any other writer. Or wait, yeah, no, that that simile made sense. Yeah, 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 of course. <laughs> or possibly a metaphor. But just that it took you 40 minutes. Yeah. I mean, I just wonder: Are you when you sit down to write? Uh, are you? Uh, does it flow usually, even if some is chaff, some is wheat? But <laughs> sometimes yes, sometimes no. Sometimes I can bang out a huge amount of work in a single day and I'm just like incredibly productive. Other times I'm like, all right, Andy, you're going to sit down in that chair and you're going to get 500 words out into that document. If they all suck, you can delete them later, but you have to write them. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, it's not like, it's not easy for me. You know, it is, it is a lot of work sometimes. Well, you initially self-published The Martian in 2012. So I wanted to ask you how that came about. Why did you decide to do it that way? And then maybe you can just share a little bit about how it was eventually picked up or very quickly picked up by Crown. Yeah, well, let's see. So I guess the story begins when I've wanted to be a writer all my life, but I also like, you know, not living in an alley in a box. So I've been a computer programmer the whole time, but I've always written for fun and as a hobby and, and stuff like that. Uh, in my when I was in my uh, early or mid twenties, I was uh, I was laid off from AOL and I got a really good severance package and I had stock options and so I had enough money to go for a little while without a job. So I spent three years trying to become a writer. I wrote a book called Theft of Pride, and it didn't uh, you know I couldn't get any interest in it from agents or publishers. And so I thought, well, I gave it a whirl back to computer programming. So from that point on, for me, writing was just a hobby. It wasn't something I took very seriously. I would just kind of do it in my own time. The Martian I wrote as a serial, and I never imagined it would be anything more than just um, a serial on my website. I, I, when I wrote it, it didn't even occur to me that it would that anybody would be interested in it beyond that. What, so I wrote it and I posted it up, and then eventually I finished. I finished, you know, the last chapter. And I'm like, there you go. I'm done. I'm moving on to something else. And people liked it, and so I would get emails from people saying, "Hey, you know, I like your book, um, but I hate reading it in a browser. Can you put it?" Can you make an EPUB and a Mobi or something like that so I can download it and look and read it on an e-reader? So I figured out how to do that, and I posted that on my site. And then I got emails from other people saying like, hey, thanks for posting these things in EPUB format, but I'm not very technically savvy, and I don't know how to get something from the Internet onto my Kindle. Can you just put it up for sale on Kindle? And so I said, okay, and I figured out how to do that. It's very simple. You don't need any sort of... You know, no one needs to approve of or authorize your work. You just put it up there for sale at whatever price you want with a minimum of 99 cents. Amazon is not willing to just give stuff away. They, they want to make, they want to make profit. This is their business model. So I charged 99 cents, which was the minimum. And I told people, if you want it for free, you can download it from my website. If you want to pay a buck to have Amazon put it on your Kindle, then here you go. And more people bought it than downloaded it for free. Because that's just how much reach into the readership market that Amazon has. More people heard about it through Amazon than had heard about it from my site or my or my readers. So it started to sell really well, and then it climbed up the top sellers list, and that got the attention of the of the print publisher, Crown. Wow! Which uh, ended up getting me a print deal and an agent, or rather, the 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 in the other order, an agent and then a print deal and the movie deal. Well, so uh, did you have any hesitancy, having succeeded really on your own, to be published by Crown? Oh, no, no hesitation whatsoever. It's been my dream to have a book in print, like, since I was a kid. That, that's, that's all my dreams coming true right there when they, when they said they wanted to do that. <laughs> 
Well, fantastic. Oh, yeah. Uh, congratulations again. Oh, thank you. So why did you want to tell this particular story? You've got a uh, an astronaut stranded on Mars. How did the idea evolve for you and about with, with your initial interest and how it grew as you were working on it? So I'm a dork and I was sitting around thinking about what's the best way to do a manned Mars mission, like not in terms of narr- narration or storytelling, but just speculation on what's the what's the best way to send people to Mars, right? And so I was thinking about, uh, okay, you know, here's how a Mars mission could work. Here's how you get the ship from point A to point B. Here's how you get the people there. And then I was like, okay, well, now the mission needs to account for problems. Like, what if you need to abort when you're halfway to Mars? What if you need to abort when you're on the surface? What if you have this thing break down or that thing break down? And I started thinking of all these scenarios and things that could go wrong and multiple multiple points of failure. In other words, what if this breaks and that breaks? And I started to realize, well, the increasingly desperate things you would have to do to fix those kind of started to sound like a pretty cool story. <laughs> and so I created a main character to suffer through all of it and put him through the ringer. <laughs> sure. And so maybe we could tell listeners just a little bit about the, I mean, the basic premise of the story is there is this man mission to Mars that is aborted at the very beginning of the book after only six days. It's supposed to be 30 days, I believe. Yeah, 31, yeah. 31, and it has to be aborted, and they leave, and one of them, they leave for dead, basically. One of their fellow astronauts they think is dead, and it turns out he's actually not dead. Right. They had very good reason to think he was dead. Every indication was that he was dead, but he wasn't. And um, then they left, taking the ascent vehicle with him, which means he has no way to leave. And the storm destroyed the communication systems, you know, on the ground. And so he didn't even have a way to contact anybody to let them know he's alive. Yeah, basically, you left Mark Watney, who's the protagonist, with very little... Uh, I mean, there was a lot to work with in a way, but there were a huge number of obstacles that he had to overcome through the course of his, his odyssey on the planet. Yep, that's the that that's the whole point of the book, was uh, just man versus nature. I mean, people have described it as Robinson Crusoe on Mars or Apollo 13 slash Castaway. I just think of it as being... My favorite scene in Apollo 13 is that scene where they have to rig up the carbon dioxide scrubbers. They have to take the the lunar module scrubbers and get it to work through the uh, command module. Right. And they use different kinds of of CO2 scrubber filters. And so that whole thing where they're like, okay, we're going to take a tube, we're going to put it onto a bag, we'll put a sock in this hole to keep that from leaking out and stuff like that. And just that sort of like ad hoc engineering MacGyver stuff was, I thought was awesome. And so I thought, well, I'll make a whole book of that. Well, tell me about that. Why was accuracy important to you? I understand that you wanted it to be as accurate as possible, of course, given certain premises like, you know, we could get a manned mission to Mars. Right. Uh, But beyond that, you wanted the technology, the science, the orbital dynamics, the time in which it takes transmissions to go from one point in space back to Earth. You really strived to make that as accurate as possible. And I wonder why you made that a priority. I guess it's like I want to write things that I would like to read. And I'm pretty nitpicky when it comes to science or or things bug me. Like, I don't mind if I'm reading a story and they're like, okay, we have a faster than light drive. Or something like that. I, I don't. I don't mind science, soft science fiction at all. In fact, I, I love it. What bothers me is when there are blatant science errors. When they're just like you know somebody takes off his helmet and holds his breath when he's on the surface of Mars, or or when people don't make the best use of the kind of made up technology that exists in a book. I, I always I always chafe at that, and it always bugs me when they show people talking instantly back and forth between Earth and Mars and having a real time conversation. I'm like, come on, guys. So. 
I just I just wanted things to be as scientifically accurate as possible, and I went overboard in a few ways. Like it probably wasn't necessary for me to work out the orbital trajectories that their ship took to get from Earth to Mars and back and stuff. But <laughs> that's also my hobby. I'm a dork. I enjoy doing that sort of stuff. So yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds like you went into it knowing a lot about the relevant science. How much more did you actually have to research? It's not every writer who can figure out the orbital dynamics of a of space flight on their <laughs> on their own. Um, but I assume there were certain things maybe you didn't know about, and you focused on acquiring more knowledge. I had a pretty uh, I had a pretty uh, deep physics and orbital dynamics knowledge even starting out on the book, just because, like I said, that's a hobby. But there was a lot of research I had to do for the book. For instance, going into it, I didn't know anything about botany or how to grow plants and stuff, and I had to do a lot of research on that. I'm really weak on chemistry, so all the chemistry stuff, I was like, okay, how would this work? Start Googling until I understand enough at least to make a plausible story. So there was a lot of stuff where I, I, I didn't know anything, and I had to basically learn it up from scratch. And um, I had a few. I have a few friends who are scientists that I could ask. My father is a physicist. My uh, he has he works at worked. He's retired now. He worked at a national lab, and so he has a lot of friends who are chemists and you know mechanical engineers who can answer some of the basic questions for me. So can we all be assured that we can grow our own potatoes on Mars if we absolutely <laughs> have to? If we have a few tubers lying around and a <laughs> and a spaceship or a habitat to dump some Martian soil onto? Well, maybe. <laughs> I, I, think, I think I did things accurately, although I don't know. So within the context of the story, remember that Mark Watney, the, the protagonist, is a botanist. Like, that's his, whole, that's his whole field of expertise. So he would have known all the little details, even if I didn't tell them all. <laughs> right, right. I see. All right. So we have, to, we have faith that if you add a competent botanist to the scenario, they'll be able to work it out. Yep. <laughs> Well, what was the hardest thing for you to figure out? Or, and I suppose it's, it's asking really Mark Watney what the hardest thing was for him to do. I don't know if those are the same things, actually. They're not quite the same thing, because Mark Watney, there was a bunch of stuff that, how do I put it? There are a bunch of things that I had to figure out that weren't Mark Watney's problem, like the orbital, like the, like the orbital dynamics. Right. It wasn't, he never had to do any orbital dynamics as part of his problem solving. That was all NASA who worked that out, but I had to work it out. <laughs> And so I wrote software to do that, to figure out the orbits that it would take, because the, the ship they took there doesn't do point thrust accelerations. Like, oh, everything we've ever sent to Mars in the real world, we've done with those. It puts itself in a transfer orbit between Earth and Mars, and then thrusts again when it gets to Mars so that it can match Mars's velocity. The ship they take does a very small but constant acceleration with ion engines, which is a technology that exists but has never been applied to anything as large as the Hermes, which is, sorry for listeners, uh, the Hermes is the name of the ship they took to get from Earth to Mars. Right. So I had to work all that out. That was pretty complicated. Another thing I had to work out is um, given a breach in a spacecraft, how much does it accelerate due to the air escaping it? I tried to do that with just straight up math and integra integration because you say like, well, any given air particle could go out in any direction. It's not just going to go out on a nice even thrust vector. So how does that work? And I ended up having to write software to simulate that too. <laughs> wow. So I hope NASA, they could use your work for future <laughs> missions. <laughs> They're, uh, <laughs> they, they do things with considerably more accuracy than I, <laughs> than I do. <laughs> you clearly had a lot of fun writing the book. And you can tell because despite the dire situation that Mark Watney faces, he has a very positive attitude. And he sometimes is having fun too. He's a sort of a smart aleck in his journal writing, which is kind of the 
really the format of the book is a, is a journal to the reader who may never, ever read this. You know, he doesn't know if he's going to survive, but he retains, it has some humor. So I was going to ask you, what was the funnest part of writing this book? What what part did you enjoy most? Hmm. I like, I, I, I like, I really did like doing the research and the science and the math. And I like it every, every now and then I liked it that, I, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to say. It's like, I could just have Mark talk exactly like I talk. So I didn't I didn't really have to kind of put myself in his mindset. He basically has my personality. I'm a smart ass, but without any of my, you know, various flaws. <laughs> so he's kind of like just the good parts of me without all the bad parts, I guess. Ah, uh, the perfect you. We could all use one of those. Yeah, yeah, the the ideal me, which is like way better than the real me. <laughs> and it was very easy to write his voice. Like I could just uh crank on that. And every now and then I was just in a in the zone coming up with funny comments and stuff. And I'd, I'd reorder things so I could keep the zingers and, and, and funny comments coming. And I, I, I liked the way that came out. Yeah, it's great. And I want to ask you a little bit more about how Mark Watney, I mean, what explains his, his ability to be so positive attitude? Well, yeah, I mean, his, he never gives up, really. I mean, right. it, it seems almost insurmountable. You'd think almost anyone at some point would say, this is this is a little too complicated, and what's the point? Uh, I can give you two answers to that. One of them is, like, within the context of the story, and the other one is, like, you know, from the point of view of the writer. Uh, within the context of the story, the idea is, you know, he's he's not just, like, some ordinary person. He's one of – he was – He's an astronaut chosen for a Mars mission, so he must be like really, really a cut above most people, right? I mean, astronauts are brave and they're intelligent and they're, I mean, there's probably thousands of highly qualified people wanted that, wanted that spot, but he's the one who got it. So let's, re- let's remember that he was chosen for these qualities that he eventually displayed. That's within the context of the story. From the writing point of view, I didn't want this to be a deep, psychological, depressing story about a man's crippling battle against loneliness while, and, and despair while fighting the elements. I wanted it to be an upbeat story. So I just said, for whatever reason, Mark has this never-say-die, don't-give-up attitude, and I'm not going to try to put a lot of effort into explaining why. <laughs> sure, yeah, I mean, that makes sense, and so much depends on him. One of the tensions in the book, I think, is you have this whole vast network at NASA when he finally can't communicate with them who know so much and there's so much science there and knowledge, and yet there's only so much they can do. Right. They can give them information. That's it. Yeah. And even then, they might lose contact. There's that communication delay. There's all kinds of potential barriers. And he only has so much to work with. He has whatever they sent with him, and it wasn't intended for him to survive, you know, a year and a half on Mars. Yeah. Also, his his fallibility comes in where, you know, sometimes his ideas don't work. And some of his and some of the things he does, he makes mistakes that cause him like to be in life or death situations. He screws up a lot, actually. <laughs> about about half his problems are due to like mistakes he made while solving other problems, which is kind of what I wanted. I wanted each problem solution to lead into the next problem, if possible. That way it doesn't look like Oh, you know, it it doesn't come off like a guy getting struck by lightning over and over. It's just like, okay, this led to that, which led to that, and so on. Well, tell me if your knowledge as a computer programmer and your training and the way your mind works, did that help you with the plot? Because what you just described where there's a problem that leads to another and everything's kind of connected, it does kind of make me think of programming where there where you might hit a dead end, you might have to backtrack. 
and everything clearly is connected. Yeah, it's it's possible that my I don't know how to put it, my fundamental approach to problem solving is is probably heavily affected by my career. And so, yeah, probably I look at things from the point of view of a computer programmer, which is like, okay, take the overall problem, break it up into discrete individual little problems, little things that need to be solved, and then start solving them in priority order. You know, that's kind of how you do things as a programmer. And that's pretty much what Mark did to, to solve his problems, I guess. <laughs> right. And he's also very, I mean, you were saying that the astronaut, what part of what explains his resilience is the fact that he is this you know, unique specimen among thousands who were picked for this special mission. But I also associate with that someone who's a little uh, kind of almost like a daredevil. You have to really be able to let go of your fears and be unique in, in that way as well. And yet Watney is also incredibly methodical. He's always double checking everything. He's always testing everything, which s- seems to be a key also to his survival. I, I think in the real world, like real astronauts are not daredevils. They're incredibly brave, but they're also very meticulous and careful. <laughs> they don't really let reckless people be astronauts. It's just, it's all about calculated risk, right? Yeah, and the, and the other thing was like I, I had to I had to walk a balance with Watney on being extremely competent. Like most people would say, like, oh, this guy is way this fictional character is way more competent and better at this stuff than I would be, right? But at the same time, I wanted him to be approachable. He talks and acts kind of like, you know, your barber. He's just he's just a guy who's uh, in a difficult spot, and he's, like, cracking wise about it. He's a guy who everyone's going to think looks like Matt Damon soon. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that sounds great. <laughs> so uh, do you have any thoughts about how the scientific accuracy is going to translate into the film? Do you have any concerns, or have you discussed with them that you want certain things to remain true to the science? Yeah, I I get questions from the production frequently, and the questions always seem to be these really detailed things about the science of the story. So they seem to be focused on on the scientific accuracy also, based on the questions I've been getting. Um, also, I got I read the screenplay. It was written by uh, Drew Goddard, and he was originally set to direct, but then he went off to direct the Spider-Man Sinister Six movie. A lot of scientific accuracy there, I'm sure. Yeah, well, yeah. But he, he liked the book quite a lot, and he, his screenplay is a very, it's very true to the book. Great. So that feels good. Yeah, it feels good. Of course, anything can happen during production. They could make huge sweeping changes to the script. But the the screenplay I saw was very, very true to the to the book. I saw a Google talk you did where, if I heard correctly, you said you don't have an e-reader and you even called yourself a Luddite. And I just <laughs> wondered, I, I found it really hard to put the put everything I know about you now as a as a deeply immersed in the accuracy of science and a computer programmer, but also someone who is calls himself a Luddite and whose career <laughs> was built on e-readers in a sense, you know, the ability to get your book out there and doesn't even have one. Yeah, it's just a, a little area of my life where I'm behind the curve. I, I just uh, I just prefer reading physical books. I will certainly relent eventually, but I just, as it is right now, I'd rather have like a, a hardback or a paperback in my hands, read it, set it down on the nightstand, you know, and when I'm about to fall asleep. Sure. That's just, I, I don't know, personal preference. <laughs> you're not you're not alone. I know that. And so and were you involved in the design of the Martian, which has a beautiful opalescent Martian-y orange color? 
You know, what's funny is they, so no, no, I wasn't. I mean, they, they showed it to me and asked for my feedback, but I didn't, you know, I wasn't a big mover or player in, in how that got done. And they said, like, here, here you go. Here's what the cover's going to look like. And I'm like, I don't like it. <laughs> and so <laughs> I really didn't like it. I was like, oh, I don't like the photo realism. I wanted, I was imagining maybe an iconic image of a guy alone shown far away with a long shadow with a Martian landscape around him or something. Sure. Instead of this guy falling over. But I also said, like, I know I'm just one person on a large team of people that are, you know, kind of bringing this product to market, but I'm giving you my opinion. I really didn't like it much but everybody else did fortunately i was like pretty much alone in that now i love it now i'm used to it and everyone else seems to really like the cover there are websites that well you you saw in the google talk i mentioned this there are websites that literally judge books by their covers they basically they're like art analysis websites they're like right here's a book cover let's talk about this from an artistic point of view and how well does it convey what the book is about and and those sites love the cover so Basically, I, you know, I was wrong <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad I was because. Yeah, it's very striking, mm-hmm. which is important for a cover. Book covers and jackets and just in general, what they look like, that's that's like a marketing thing, right? It, it's all it's almost it's the same as like, you know, toothpaste packaging. You want to grab the person's eye and it, and it's all it's all about it's all about that, which is completely out of my knowledge base. So I'm glad that people who knew what they were doing did it instead of me. Absolutely. <laughs> so tell me. Do you want to travel to Mars yourself if given the opportunity? Nope. <laughs> no, no. I like to I like to fantasize about that sort of stuff and daydream about it, but no, I would I would I would never have the courage to do something like that. I'm I just uh that's just too much personal risk for me. I would <laughs> I'd pass. <laughs> so Mark Watney is you, but minus the courage. No, just kidding. It's the other way around. Like I said, Mark Watney is me without any of my bad points. Right. I got it. I got it backwards. I'm Mark Watney <laughs> minus the courage. <laughs> right. Well, so now you said it. I, I didn't say that. I would never say that. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. And minus a bunch of other stuff, too. <laughs> well, tell me what motivates you as a writer. I mean, is it clearly you're having fun telling stories? Is it is it mainly that? Is it about connecting with people? Is there a message you're trying to get out about science or the perseverance of man? That's kind of that's a theme in the book. But I'm never I never I never have a point to my writing. I'm never trying to push an agenda or change people's minds about anything. For me, the purpose of reading a book is to be entertained while reading the book. Uh, I, I really uh, I, I know this isn't exactly the question you asked, but I'm just kind of going off on a tangent. Go for it. I really don't I, I don't like it when when I feel like I'm being preached at in a book when I can smell the political agenda behind the story. You know what I mean? Sure. And I, I don't care if it's the if it even if it's something that I completely agree with politically, it still irritates me. Right. I'm like, look, don't preach. Just tell me a story. And so I try very hard not to have any hint of politics, even if it's something as simple as like, you know, People would forgive me if if my theme was we should spend more on space research. Like nobody would consider that to be this big major political claim on my part. But I'm not even. Uh, but I'm not even saying that. <laughs> the themes that run through the book are basically that people work together very well in times of crisis and will make great sacrifices for each other, and that that's just part of human nature and that humanity is awesome. So it's it's intended to be sort of a kind of a, a cheerful, uplifting story. Yeah, well, there you go. I guess that's the spoiler. Yeah, well, it's intended, yeah, probably, maybe a little. So what's next? What are you working on now? Uh, I'm working on a, a my next book, and it's it's called Jeck. I had a bunch of chapters of that posted up as a serial on my website, but it, but now, now that I've got a, a print deal for it, 
they you know they they wanted me to take them down uh it's it's much uh softer science fiction it's not like the rigidly accurate sci-fi that the martian it is it has a few kind of impossible things in it and it's grander in scope and it's it's more classic good old-fashioned sci-fi and what's the when do you think it's going to be ready for for um for sale i would guess late next year that would be the hope and I understand you are now full time engaged with your writing, so that's that's fantastic. Yep, full time full time engaged in the writing, and should be working on that book. Although I wander off and write little short stories every now and then. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's. I mean, you do have this community you described, which has only grown. I assume. Yeah, yeah. And it is probably hungry for uh, to hear from you. Yep. And I've got one short story that I wrote a while ago that I'm like, eh, I can't post it yet because I wrote it for a. Um, it's a British, I don't want to say magazine, because that would be a regular publication. This is a one-off thing, and they're publishing it, and all the all the money they make are going to help homeless children in the UK. And they asked me to write a story for it, and so I, I did that. But I don't want to post it to my own site before they publish their book, because I don't want to reduce the odds that somebody buys theirs. So I'm just... I'm just holding on to it, and that'll be sometime in May. But finally, I can, I've can. i got this little one short story that I'm like, eh, I want an audience. I want people to read it, <laughs> but I have to wait till May. <laughs> wow. It's important to you to engage the readers. You know there's someone out there. I guess that's that's true for, for all of us writers, that we want people to see what we do and enjoy it. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And that's, that's really important to me. I, I love knowing that people are reading my stuff. I don't know if that's ego or just basic human nature or what but that's it's really important to me to have an audience well listen thank you so much for taking the time away i hope your fans don't mind that i took a little time <laughs> away from you producing anything something new <laughs> i've been speaking with andy weir about his debut novel the martian and you can get it wherever fine hard science adventures are sold uh, hard science fiction adventures are sold so if you're one of the few lovers of sci-fi who doesn't have a copy yet go out and get it and you can find out more about Mr. Weir at his website, which is, what is it? You can just go to andyweir.com, and it'll take you to the author site. Great. And that's Andy, W-E-I-R. Yep. Please don't forget to like the New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy page on Facebook, and tell your friends about us, and even consider leaving a review on iTunes or whatever app you're using to listen to the show. I'm Rob Wolf. I'm author of the Kronos Chronicle series. You can visit me at www.robwolf.net. And please stay tuned. In the coming weeks, I'll be speaking with the legendary Robert Silverberg, as well as a, a number of other uh, exciting authors, including Max Gladstone, who's the author of the Craft Sequence series, and Brian Staveley, author of The Emperor's Blades. Thanks for listening.